Well, we're in a series on the book of Exodus, and uh, one of the big things we've been seeing as we go through Exodus is that Exodus gives us answers to the basic questions of life, questions like, who is God? Uh, What is he like? How do you connect to him? But one of the big themes, one of the big questions, probably the primary question or theme that the book of Exodus um, helps us with is the question, what is salvation? Um, And as we've been going through the book over the past several weeks, we've been looking at this question um, for several weeks. But last week, um, and and continuing on this week, uh, we're seeing that the question actually begins to shift a little bit. That as you go through the book of Exodus, the question actually shifts from what is salvation to why does God save us? What's his purpose in salvation? Uh, This passage that we just read... um, shows us God's purpose for salvation. It shows us that one of God's big purposes in salvation is to give your life a new purpose. And everybody needs purpose. When you feel like your life has meaning and purpose, that empowers you, that energizes you, that gives you hope. But when people don't feel like their life has any meaning or purpose, it's, it's one of the most crushing things that can happen to people. Everybody needs to know that their life has meaning and purpose. Why are you here? Why do you exist? What's your purpose for living? Why do you bother getting out of bed in the, in, in the morning? Everybody needs to know that their life has a meaning and a purpose. This passage shows us God's purpose for his people. In fact, hundreds of years after the Exodus, the Apostle Peter, he wrote a little letter to the early church. Uh, and in that letter, First Peter, it was all about Um, our identity as Christians, and especially about the purpose of the church. What is the purpose of the church? In that letter, Peter quotes this passage pretty much verbatim and says, this is the purpose. It's the same purpose statement. In this passage, God is saying to Israel and to us, he's giving us our purpose statement. He's saying, when you get into a relationship with me, I give you a whole new purpose, a whole new reason for living. What is that purpose? This passage shows us, and it does so by showing us three things in particular. We're going to see this morning the source of our purpose. We're going to see the nature of our purpose. And lastly, we're going to see where do we get the power to live out that purpose. All right? The source, the nature, and the power of our purpose. The first thing is the source of our purpose. Now, this is one of the most famous passages in the Bible, Mount Sinai. This is where God comes down and gives the people the Ten Commandments, incredibly famous passage. Um, And we're going to look at the Ten Commandments next week. But this week, chapter 19, um, before God ever says one word in chapter 20, chapter 19, a very large Um, portion of chapter 19 is filled with a lot of description about what happened when God came down on the mountain. I mean, there's thunder, there's lightning, there's fire, there's smoke, there's clouds, there's trumpets, um, the mountain is shaking, the people are shaking, everything's shaking. And the question is, why all of this description? I mean, it goes on and on. Why all of the description? Why not just say, God came down, now here's what he said. Why not just cut straight to the dialogue? I mean, after all, isn't that the really important part? The reason Exodus gives us so much description about what's going on here in this passage is because it's a way of slowing down the action and focusing our attention. It's kind of like, you know how 
when you're watching a high-intensity action scene, and just for a moment, it'll slow the action down, go slow-mo. So maybe, you know, it's a, it's a scene of a football player running into the end zone to catch a football, and he's running, and he's running, and he runs into the end zone, and he leaps up into the air, and, and then just as about the football is just about to enter into his hands, it slows way down, and the ball falls into his hands, and then it speeds up again. The slow motion is a way of focusing your attention on that crucial moment. It's a way of saying, pay attention to this. This is important. That is exactly what's happening in Exodus chapter 19. It's a way of focusing our attention and saying, this is important. Now, why is this so important? There are um, a couple of words that theologians and philosophers like to use to describe um, different ways of thinking about reality. And a lot of times I almost hesitate to talk about these words because they're kind of like intellectual words, but this is a smart crowd and I think you guys are up for it. Um, the first word is the word transcendent. And that's a pretty common word. Transcendent just means a world beyond this world. The other word is imminent, but not imminent, I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T. That means something is about to happen. No, this is the word imminent, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T. Immanent means confined to this world, located completely within this world. It's the opposite of transcendent. Transcendent means beyond this world. Imminent means within this world. Now, why is this so important? It's because Exodus, in this chapter, in this section of Exodus, God is giving the people the Ten Commandments. He's giving them the law. He's basically saying, here's how I want you to live. He's giving them their purpose statement. But what is that showing us? It's showing us that unless you get a meaning and a purpose for your life, that um, it comes from outside of this world, you can't really have a meaning for life inside of this world. It's showing us that, that ultimate meaning and purpose in life cannot be derived within this world alone, that unless you get a meaning for life outside of this world, you can't have a meaning for life inside of this world. That's what this is showing us. Now, when God comes down on this mountain, that's what he's showing, okay? That, in other words, if your meaning and purpose for living is based on something that this world can take away or something that can be destroyed, guess what? You'll be destroyed. So, for instance, Viktor Frankl was a, a very famous Jewish psychiatrist who was put in the Nazi death camps during World War II. In fact, he spent time in Auschwitz, which was one of the most notorious death camps, um, he lost his family. He uh, endured incredible suffering. But one of the interesting things about Viktor Frankl is that um, even in the midst of all of that suffering, he couldn't stop observing and analyzing and noticing the different ways that people were responding to the brutality and the suffering that was going on around them. He, he couldn't stop being a scientist and, um, and analyzing what was going on in the death camps. And he noticed that people responded to the brutality and suffering in different ways. There was one group of people that responded to the brutality by becoming brutal themselves. They ended up collaborating with the Nazis. They, um, they betrayed their fellow Jews. They became vicious, horrible people. There was another group of people that basically they just gave up. In fact, he says in a number of cases that some people literally just laid down on the ground and died. 
And there was another group of people um, who, who they thought, you know, they put all of their hope that if I can just survive, if I can just get out, then when I get out, I'm going to be able to get my old life back. I'm going to be able to get my family or my career or my home or my position in society. But when they got out and those things were gone, they were incredibly disillusioned. In fact, uh, many of them committed suicide. So there were different ways of responding. Some people became brutal. Some people gave up. Some people put their hope in things that the world can take away. There was only one group, a very small group of people, Viktor Frankl noticed, that, that it, when they were faced with suffering, they stayed kind. They stayed courageous. They stayed resilient. They were able to face it with courage and dignity and inner strength. And Viktor Frankl wanted to know why. He ended up writing a book about why. The book is called Man's Search for Meaning. In that book, he said that life in a concentration camp tore open the human soul and exposed its depths. What, what life in a concentration camp did was it exposed the foundations. It exposed what people were really living for. In fact, the basic premise of the whole book and really Viktor Frankl's whole life work was simply this, that Unless you find a meaning and a purpose for your life that, that death cannot touch and that the world cannot take away from you, then you will end up ultimately being crushed. Because he said, people can't live without meaning. People can't live without purpose. And unless you find a meaning and a purpose for your life that can't be destroyed, you'll be destroyed. Friends, that is one of the main messages of this passage in other words, if your ultimate meaning in life is based on something that can be destroyed, based on something that can be taken away from you, in other words, if it's based on something imminent, right, located within this world, that means it's touchable, it's vulnerable, it's losable, it can be taken away from you. If you base your purpose, your reason for living in life on something that can be taken away from you, what happens when it is? One of the main messages of this book, of this section, is that unless you get a meaning for life that's outside of this world, you can't have a meaning for life inside of this world. That, that at least not a meaning that's real, not a meaning that lasts. In this passage, God is giving us a purpose, a reason for living that endures. It can't be taken away from us. What is that purpose? That leads to our second point. We've just seen the source of our purpose, but next we need to see the nature of our purpose. And let me um, get into this like this. There are two primary ways um, of conceiving of the Christian life. And really, this applies to all religions. When uh, sociologists are looking at religions, they uh, understand religious behavior in two basic categories. Uh, one category we could call the conservative fundamentalist group. And the other category we could call like the mainline progressive group. So, for instance, the, the conservative fundamentalist group, sociologists notice this, that they're more concerned with, with having certain truths, holding to certain beliefs, and connecting people to God, helping people to see God, connect to God. Um, the progressive mainline group, religious activity, is not as concerned with truth. They say truth is relative. It doesn't really matter what you believe. We just want you to come in and be a part of what we're doing. And therefore, the, the, the mainline progressive groups focus much more on social action and trying to make the world a better place. Or, to put it in the terms we just talked about in the last point, the conservative fundamentalist group is all about the transcendent. 
connecting people to God, a world beyond this world, while the progressive mainline group is all about the imminent. It's all about this world right here, right now. Now, here's the question. Which of those two things best describes God's purposes for his people? In other words, should the church be all about saving souls or saving the world? The answer is yes. God cares about both. Unless you have a meaning for life that comes from outside of this world, you can't have a meaning for life inside of this world. In other words, God's purpose for the church is to be a bridge, an intersection between the transcendent and the imminent, a bridge or an intersection between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. And one of the ways you can see that, by the way, is just by looking at the big picture of the book of Exodus. I mean, big picture, what is the whole book about? The first half of the book of Exodus is all about getting the people out of um, economic and political oppression. It's all about the imminent. But then the second half of the book is all about getting them into the presence of God, into the worship of God. It's all about the transcendent. This passage that we just read shows us the same thing, but in far greater detail. So look with me. Um, Up in verse 6, God tells Israel, you're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, let me show you how amazing this is. First, God says, you're going to be priests. Now, what, what's the job of a priest? A priest's basic job is to bring people into the presence of God. The basic job of a priest is to help people see God, experience God, connect to God. Very transcendent. It's all about a world beyond this world. But notice God does not just say, you're going to be priests. He says, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. Now, this is a little foreign to us because we don't live in a world that really you know, has kings or queens anymore. But when it uses that word kingdom, that's a political word. A kingdom is a society of people that's one among many other societies of people. It has its own law, its own government, its own economy. It's a very political entity, whereas being a priest is all about the transcendent, a world about a world beyond this world, being a kingdom is all about the imminent. It's all about this world, being confined to this world. When God says to Israel, you are going to be a kingdom of priests, God is saying, I want you to be actively engaged in this world. I want you to be actively engaged in the flourishing of this whole world, in every sphere of this world, political, economic, social, cultural, intellectual, artistic, everything. But I want you to do everything that you do in this world in such a way that it points to me. That it points people to who I am and what I'm like and how to connect to me. It's the bridge between the transcendent and the imminent. And boy, that really comes out um, even more in the next thing that God says to Israel. He doesn't just say, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. He says, you're going to be a holy nation. So notice he calls them a nation, again, very political word. That's a society of people. That's one among many other societies of people. But notice he says you're going to be a holy nation. Now, what does holy mean? The basic meaning of the word holy means separate or distinct or unique. It means um, there's nothing else like it. It means it's completely set apart from everything else. And especially the word holy means that, that you are set apart for God's purposes. In other words, the way you live your life in this world is radically different from the rest of the world. So that in, on the one hand, you're going to be involved in the flourishing of this world, very imminent, but you're going to do so in such a way that everything you do points to the transcendence of God. 
Now, here's the question. How are we going to do that? What does that actually look like, concretely speaking? That's where Mount Sinai helps us. We've just been looking at Mount Sinai. What happened at Mount Sinai? God comes down. Okay? Now, we already saw that. Great. But how does that help us? How does that show us how we're supposed to go about living a holy life? How we're supposed to go about living a life that is radically different from the rest of the world around us? Here's how. When God brought the Israelites to the mountain, that was a very significant thing in that culture. In that culture, um, you would go to the mountain in order to, to go up on the mountain and make an offering to God. And if you didn't have a mountain, what they would do is they would build a tower. They were called ziggurats. You remember the Tower of Babel? That's what that was. It was a ziggurat. In that culture, you would go to the mountain or you would go to the ziggurat and then you would ascend up the mountain and you would bring your offering up onto the mountain and, and make your offering to the God in order to get the God to bless you and to give you a good life. That's the way it worked. So, you know, at one level... It's kind of a way of seeking God, but it's not really about having an encounter with the transcendent. It's really more about getting the God to bless you and give you a good life. It's really more about you, more about your flourishing, more about your life in this world, which means that it's really more about power. Because that approach to God says that what you do is you got to be good, or you got to be strong, or powerful, or rich, and what you do is you go up the mountain, you bring your offering, and you offer it to the God in order to get the God to bless you and give you a good life. Really, what that is, is, is it's really just about power and control, and in that paradigm, God is really nothing more than a friend with benefits, but, but this mountain is completely different, because on this mountain, notice when God brings the people to the mountain, before they can even think about going up onto the mountain to make an offering, God says, stay right where you are. Don't come another step forward. What's going on? Every other mountain is all about getting up the mountain, getting up to God, but this mountain is all about God getting down to the people. And remember who these people are. These are recently freed slaves, okay? That means no power, no clout no status. The, the, God is all about getting down to these people, coming down to the people in sheer grace to a people who have absolutely nothing to offer him. Friends, this is the, the, the difference between the city of God and the city of the world. This is the difference between the city, the nation, the kingdom of God, and the city, the nation, the kingdom of the world, because the city of the world is based on the premise of, of power. It's all about getting up the mountain, bringing your offering, getting the God to bless you. It's all about having power and control over God. But the city of God is all about God coming down, coming to the people in sheer grace, coming to a people who are poor, afflicted, oppressed, people who have absolutely nothing to offer him. The city of the world is all about your life for mine. The city of God is all about my life for yours. The city of, of the world is all about getting power, whereas the city of God is all about giving power away, giving power to those who don't have any. Do you see how this works? Do you see how this would make you radically different from the world around you? If you lived your life according to that principle, not getting power, but giving it away, that would make you completely different from the rest of the world around you. In fact, um, historians 
uh, frequently point out that there were many things about the early church that made the early church radically different from the world around it. Um, remember I said the Apostle Peter wrote uh, a letter uh, um, to the early church um, describing for them what their life is supposed to look like, how their life is supposed to look different from the rest of the world around them. Historians will point out that the, the church was radically different from the rest of the ancient world. And even though the church didn't have any power in those first few hundred years, they didn't have any political power, they didn't have any military power, they didn't have any cultural power, they were persecuted, they were afflicted, they were oppressed. The world tried to quash the early church. And yet, within the space of about 300 years, the early church utterly transformed the ancient world. How? There's a New Testament scholar named Larry Hurtado who wrote a book last year called Destroyer of the Gods. And in that book, he says there were five characteristics, five marks about the early church that made the church radically distinct, radically different from the rest of the world around it. You want to know what those five marks were? Number one, they were racially inclusive. It was the most multi-ethnic community the world had ever seen. Number two, they were radically generous. The early church didn't just take care of their own poor, they took care of everybody's poor. Number three, they were non-retaliatory, so that when people persecuted them, when the world tried to, um, to get rid of them, they didn't retaliate, they forgave people. And by the way, this was a shame-honor culture, which means in that culture, if somebody wronged you, you were duty-bound, your honor depended on you avenging yourself on that person. The Christians didn't do that. They didn't retaliate, they forgave people. So number one, racially inclusive. Number two, caring for the poor. Number three, non-retaliatory. Number four, um, they were against infanticide and abortion. They would, in those days, um, babies were expendable, especially, by the way, baby girls were not wanted in that culture. And what they would do, if they didn't want a baby, they would just put it on the trash heap to either die of exposure or people would come by, take the babies, and sell them into slavery the Christians would go to the trash heaps and rescue the babies and raise them in their own homes. They were radically pro-life, but in a really comprehensive way. Um, that's number four. But number five, the early Christian church um, had a radically different sexual ethic. In fact, some people have said that was the first sexual revolution because the early Christian church had this radical idea that sex was to be used only within the confines of marriage radically different from the world around you. Now, here's what's amazing about all of this. I was listening to a lecture recently by Tim Keller, the great pastor and writer in New York City, and he was talking about these five characteristics of the early church, and he points out something remarkable about these five characteristics. If you look at the first two, racially inclusive and caring for the poor, that looks a lot like progressive folks. And if you look at the last two, um, against infanticide and abortion and, and a radically pure sexual ethic. That looks a lot like conservative folks. But if you look at the one in the middle, non-retaliatory, that doesn't look like anybody. The reason the church was able to transform the ancient world was because those five things, those characteristics, were radically different from everybody else in the world. They didn't look like anybody. There was no category that you could put the church into. They looked like nobody else because those five principles, those five characteristics were all based on this principle, the principle not of getting power, but of giving power away. The principle not of 
your life for mine, but of my life for yours. The principle that said, my needs, my interests, my well-being takes a back seat to your needs, your interests, your well-being. Absolutely transformed the ancient world. And friends, by the way, you know, if you live a life like that, people are going to want to know why. They're going to want to know what's up with you because nobody lives like that in this world. And when people ask you why, then you open your mouth and you say, well, I serve a God who already did all of this for me. I serve a God who's all about, instead of getting power, giving power away. And by the way, um, notice that this is something that, that has to be done in community. You can't live like this all by yourself. When God spoke to Israel, he was speaking to the whole nation of Israel. He was saying, you have to do this in community. In other words, you can't just live like this all by yourself and expect that you're fulfilling God's purpose for your life. Or for instance, when Jesus was talking to his disciples and he said, you are the light of the world, the you there is plural. Jesus was saying, you all are the light of the world. In other words, unless you are connected to a group of of Christ followers, a group of other people who are all striving to fulfill um, the way of Jesus and live the way of Jesus in this world with other people, then you can't really fulfill God's purpose for your life. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the source of our purpose, that unless you get a meaning for life outside of this world, you can't have a meaning for life inside of this world. And we've seen the nature of that purpose, that God calls his people to live lives that are radically different from the world around us, to live our lives on the principle of giving away power so that the world would look at our lives in this world and that it would point to God who is beyond this world. But lastly, we need to see where we get the power to live like this. How do we actually get the power to live lives like this? Here's how we get it. If you look in verse 5, God says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now, that word treasured possession, it's a very unique word in the Bible. It's a word that basically means the king's special private treasure. And by the way, notice how God says, all things are mine. In those days, the king owned everything. The king owned the roads, the buildings, the fields, the granaries, the, 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 um, the people. The king owned everything. So, so for this to say this was the king's special private treasure, that was like the treasure that the king kept under lock and key in his own room. Kind of like, you know, when Gollum says to the ring, you're my precious. This is the king's precious, but a good precious. It's a good kind of precious, okay? It's a good kind of devotion. Something is the king's precious. That's what God is saying. But now, it would be easy to look at this and think that when God says this, it'd be easy to think God is saying, look, if you're a good person, if you obey me, if you live a good life, then you will be my treasure. Then I will love you and accept you and bless you. But that's not what God is saying. God is not saying, obey me and then I will treasure you. He's saying, obey me because I have already made you my treasure. That's what he's saying. And the proof comes in the verse right before this. In verse 4, the very first thing God says to Israel, notice what he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. The images of a mother bird, or really a mother eagle, which is the strongest and most powerful of all the birds, the images of, of the eagle hovering over its baby and picking up the baby and then carrying the baby to safety. 
Basically, God is saying to Israel, remember how I saved you. Remember what I did for you. Remember that you did nothing. You didn't have to fight. You didn't have to struggle. You didn't have to do anything. I picked you up and carried you out of Egypt. I carried you to to safety. I did everything for you. That's what God is saying. And friends, if we don't hold on to that, if we forget that verse 4 comes before verse 5, then we will always get the gospel backwards. Because God is saying, I saved you first. I already treasured you. Now live the way I'm calling you to live. If we get those two things backwards, the gospel is not saying, obey me and then you will be my treasure. It's saying, obey me because you already are my treasure. God is not saying, obey me and then you'll be my treasure. That's religion. In the gospel, God says, I have already saved you. I have already made you my treasure. You are already my precious You were already the object of my special affection. And now I want you to take possession of that status and act like it. I want you to live your lives in this world in such a way that everything you do points to me, points to who I am and what I'm like, points to a God who's all about giving away power, not getting power. Now, here's the question. How are we going to live like that? The only way is if you know, already know that you're already God's treasure, that you are already the object of God's special affection. Remember, unless you get a meaning for life outside of this world, you can't have a meaning for life inside of this world. That means that if you build your meaning and your purpose in life on anything in this world, then no matter how wonderful it is, then you will always need for that thing to be going well in order to feel okay about yourself. It means that you will always need for that thing to be going well in order to feel like you're worthy of being treasured. Friends, that's what the Bible calls sin. That if you build your life on anything other than God, if you build your life, if you make anything other than God your treasure, your ultimate treasure in life, then basically it's still a way of trying to have power and control, not just over your own life, but over God too. It's a rejection of God. And it's, a, it's an approach to life, an approach to God that says, I've got to be good. I've got to be strong. I'm going to ascend the mountain. I'm going to go up and I'm going to bring my offering to God. God, I've been a good person. God, I've lived a good life. It's a way of bringing that and then using it as leverage to get God to, to bless you with your real treasure. That's not serving or worshiping God. That's using God. Now, here's the question. How is that going to change? How Are you going to be able to see, really see and know and embrace the reality that you already are God's treasure? The only way is to see this mountain really points to the greater mountain that comes hundreds of years later. Because what happened on this mountain? On this mountain, the transcendent God of the universe came down in thunder and lightning and fire and smoke. On this mountain... The transcendent God of the universe came down to make a people his treasure, a people who had nothing to offer him. But hundreds of years later, there was another mountain, not Mount Sinai, but Mount Calvary, where Jesus Christ was crucified. Because who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the true precious. He's the real treasure. He's the ultimate object of God's special affection because Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God which means that from all eternity, he always had the face of the Father shining on him in love and delight and joy. But on Mount Calvary, when they crucified Jesus Christ, there was the thunder. 
There was the lightning and the fire and the smoke. It was the thunder of God's wrath, the lightning and the fire and the smoke of all his judgment on human evil, human sin. But instead of coming down on the mountain, it was coming down on Jesus. Because Jesus Christ is the bridge between the transcendent and the imminent. He is the transcendent God who became a man in this world. But on the cross, the, the transcendent God of the universe was cast aside. He was rejected so that you could be treasured because Jesus Christ didn't just carry on his shoulders the sins of the world. He didn't just carry on his shoulders the wrath of God. He carried you on his shoulders. He carried you so that he could present you to God, bring you to the Father, so that you could be the Father's special treasure. Jesus did that for you because you are his precious. When you get that in your life, that does not mean that you stop caring about the things of this world. That does not mean that you stop loving all the things of this world. In fact, it's just the opposite. When you get the transcendent love of God in your life, that makes you a vessel of that love in the world, to the world. It means that you're free. <laughs> you're finally free. Free now for the first time in your life to truly love and serve and care for all the things of this world because now for the first time in your life, you are no longer demanding that all those things give your life meaning and purpose. You're free. So that if a relationship ends, yeah, it'll be hard, but, but you're not crushed by it. Or, or if you lose your job, yes, you will be sad, but, but you won't be devastated. Or or if, um, if you don't get the grade you were hoping for, yes, you will be disappointed, but you won't be destroyed. Or if you voted for a candidate and that candidate doesn't get voted into office, you won't lose hope and you'll be able to love all the people who voted for that other candidate because your ultimate hope is located in the God of the universe who extends his kingdom into this world not by getting power, but by giving it away. Friends, you'll be free truly free, free to love, free to serve, not in order to become God's treasure, but because you already are his treasure. When the transcendent love of God comes into your life, that transforms everything about the way you live your life in this world, in the community of other people. You get a new meaning, you get a new hope, you get a new purpose. Is that purpose your purpose today? The more you see Jesus on the cross making you his treasure, the more you become his treasure, the more he becomes your treasure. And the more Jesus becomes your treasure, the more his purpose becomes your purpose. Let's pray.